News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. The Pete Callender Show. This is the Pete of the show. And uh, the numbers are 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Uh, so you've got uh, the story over the weekend of John Durham, the special counsel, with uh, another filing in. Uh, this was It was kind of a weird way that the filing was made and how this new evidence kind of made its way out. Uh, which is that, or this new uh, allegation, I should say, is that the attorney for, former attorney for Hillary Clinton's campaign, Michael Sussman, uh, the, the, they're trying to say that he's, uh, he's, his lawyers and he have a conflict or something, and so they, in, they need a new lawyer. And so in that filing, special counsel John Durham lets it be known that basically Sussman was the bag man and was billing the Clinton campaign for the information that he then passed along to the FBI and another agency. And that information came from secret like computer info that the tech guy only got because he had a government contract through a university. And he was also on the payroll for the Clinton campaign. That's the, that's how they came about this stuff. That's how they pushed the narrative over to the FBI and agency number two. Um, and then that all got leaked out to media, which dutifully reported it without any kind of qualms, right? They just pushed it all out there that Trump was in bed with the Russians and this Alpha Bank story and the Russian mobile phones. And we got him, Dedra. It's the smoking gun. The walls are closing in. The walls have been closing in on Trump for so long. Like, I would love to get an assessment on the original size of the room, because this has got to be the biggest room ever invented. Seriously, if the walls are still closing in, they've been closing in for like six years. That's a long time, but maybe it's going really, really slowly. Like, if you think about it, like every time you paint, like those walls are kind of closing in on you just a little bit, just a fraction of... Okay, so... When this story and info gets out over the weekend, you would think, like a Saturday, wow, this is a pretty big bombshell story. Maybe some folks are going to run with it. You got the Sunday shows. You could do a lot of stuff with this. But uh, no, for some reason, not not a lot of coverage. And by a lot, I mean like none. There was no coverage of this. I mean, outside of those right-wing echo chamber you know, news sources, if you can trust them, which, by the way, you can as much or as little as you trust all of the other media outlets. See, this is the thing. Like, I am an all-of-the-above kind of guy. I have said this for, oh gosh, 20 years now, 15 years. I've been telling people, I would say this, when I was a young cub reporter, I would go to uh, schools uh, back when they would, like, let me in and uh, talk to kids. Um, Well, now they don't because I'm a right-wing talk show host. But when I was a reporter, they were like, oh, my gosh, he's a firefighter for democracy. Come in. And so I would go in there and I would talk to students. And I would tell them the same thing that I'm about to say now as a right-wing talk show host. And I'm going to tell you, get your news from multiple places. I've been telling people that's the one piece of advice I have been consistently giving on media consumption, which is get your news from multiple places. Because you're not going to be completely or as well-informed if you only consume a single news source. Unless, of course, you're listening to me. I cover all the bases. See, so like you could just listen to me. Okay, granted, I added that part as a talk show host. But when I was a reporter, 
to get your news from multiple places. But now I go through all of this stuff and I kind of distill down, I bring you all this stuff. So I try to give you stories that have come from uh, a wide array of news outlets because you can kind of get the, and this is how I do, is I can kind of get the truth of the matter. I can kind of get at the, at the reality of things. I can get your side, I can get their side, and kind of distill down key points of agreement. And then make a judgment. Or, you know, are you telling me the truth or are they telling me the truth? Or maybe the truth is somewhere in between. Maybe it's my truth. I'm kidding. Mark Hemingway had a write-up at uh, lawliberty.org. And it was a write-up, uh, it was a book review, basically. And I have uh, talked about this book before. I've not read the book, but I've talked about some of the uh, highlights of this book and its main premise. The book is called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Okay? And it's, uh, and I apologize if I don't pronounce this person's name correctly. I believe I am, but I'm going to give it a shot. Batya Ungar Sargon. Ungar-Sargon. Batya Ungar-Sargon. And her book is Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. So Mark Hemingway... Um, and I've been reading Hemingway. His wife, by the way, is Molly Hemingway. Uh, and I've been reading Mark and Molly both for years. And um, he is now an investigative journalist, but he's worked at newspapers and magazines, Financial Wire. So he's been all over the place. And uh, I trust a lot of what he reports and his uh, his analysis. So he does a book review. And I'm, I will get there, by the way. I will tie this to the blue and on Russia, 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 Russian phones, all that stuff. I, I'm going to tie it there. Okay, just give me a second. But how woke media is undermining democracy, according to the book, he says uh, he was kind of worried that he was going to be reading this and it was just going to be like your typical thing, like, oh, you know, they're, they're terrible, whatever. But apparently, if I remember correctly, Batya Unger Sargon is from the left. She's actually a liberal. And... She's very disturbed by what she has seen occur in the media industry and in newsrooms. So he says the book's key insight is that the media's problems stem largely from issues of class. Even if the problems are outwardly manifested as political and cultural extremism in the news. Okay. Central premise that the problems in the media are class problems even though they may look like political or cultural extremism in a lot of different ways in the news, that's way it, that's the way it looks, but that's not actually the root problem. The root problem is class. So journalism used to be written primarily by the working class and for the working class. But what has happened as the industry shrinks, it has become more and more ensconced in an elitist bubble, which serves the interests of the corporate ownership and the distribution channels that are now controlled by big tech. Do you notice when I talk about media, I don't I don't really use the term mainstream media anymore because what is mainstream any longer? I, I can't even tell. We're mainstream. So I don't use the term. I prefer corporate and legacy media outlets or, you know, leftist if they're really leftist. But those are the ones that I, these are like your big corporate establishments that have been around for a long time. And uh, they have all of these, you know, shareholders and stuff. And they've been shrinking newsrooms. And it's been going on for decades. It's created a very real problem. 
News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT, reading from a piece by Mark Hemingway at lawliberty.org. It's a review of a book called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. But it's it's a far more expansive impact um, beyond just wokeism. I'm actually not even really going to discuss the wokeism stuff so much. It's about the newsroom culture and what has occurred to the profession. Okay, because as... So according to the book, Batia Ungar Sargon is her name. She's the author. And um, the premise is that uh, the book's key insight is that the media's problems stem largely from issues of class. Because journalism used to be done by working class folk for working class folk. But as the industry has gotten smaller, it became more ensconced in an elitist bubble. And that bubble serves the interests of the corporate ownership and the distribution channels that are controlled by big tech, which renders it incapable of accurately describing, much less diagnosing, the problems faced by working class folks who were the audience, right? So that leaves the news business in this death spiral as ordinary Americans reject the media in growing numbers, okay? So there's a whole bunch of layers to this, you know, onion to peel back. And uh, she introduces the book with a, a bunch of different anecdotes and observations about uh, the media's current uh, fealty to wokeism, which is defined as sort of a left-wing prestidigitation by swapping class concerns for narrower and politically correct concerns of race. This allows major media to preserve their existing business model which hinges on catering to increasingly smaller and wealthier audiences and advertisers. They're becoming more and more niche. I think of this in terms of magazines. Remember when magazines were dying? I do. I don't remember when it was. I was younger. I wasn't really paying attention, but I remember... I remember in the dorm room, remember that some guy would come around and be like, hey, you want like 70 magazines for a penny or something? Like, okay... That's how I got all these magazine subscriptions. And I remember shortly after that thinking or uh, reading a, 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 piece, a piece in the paper or something, and they were like, oh, yeah, the death of magazines. Then all of a sudden, they started getting me all these magazines that were really, really, really specific, you know? And I thought, what is this business model? How do they make a go of it? The whole thing is ads. I don't understand. Right? But that's, that's the way now of newsrooms. They're becoming, that, they're becoming the same way. So they get to keep, so they're trying to keep their audience, but it's, it's shrinking. This smaller and smaller, but wealthier audience. And who wants to talk to that audience of the advertisers, right? So the advertisers and the audience, but they're getting smaller pools. Meanwhile, the media operations, they get to keep up the self-serving illusion that they're holding power to account rather than catering to the ruling class, because that is what they're doing. This is sort of the joke about, you know, NPR. And I say that as one who grew up listening to NPR. I even worked at the NPR affiliate here in Charlotte. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I know, you can't trust anything I say anymore. I just mailed people coffee mugs. Well, the first one's always free. That's how they, that's how they hook you. Anyway, once you acknowledge the truth of this ob- observation... The contradiction is everywhere you look. And it's true. It, I, like, what, you can call it red-pilled or whatever, like from the Matrix. It's not political, but it's, it's you know, here's the red pill. You, you wake up. 
And once you see it, you cannot unsee it. The blue pill is you stay asleep. That's from the Matrix, which I just found out like a year ago. My wife had never seen these movies. I mean, I'm not saying we wouldn't have got married. I'm, I'm just, if I had known. No, I'm kidding. But we, we, we sat down one weekend and watched all three of them. Now the fourth one's out. So uh, anyway, aside from the hypocrisy charges, who the media establishment ultimately serves has a huge impact on how newsrooms go about addressing fundamental questions, right? Instead of presenting real solutions that require reporting uncomfortable truths, woke media frames the issue so that any changes to the system don't threaten the existing liberal power structures because they're the ones in charge. They're not interested in disrupting that, right? So that's where wokeism comes into play. I'll explain that in a bit. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT, Pete Callender Show, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. So, uh, all right, so the book called Bad News, and I keep forgetting, Ungar Sargon is her name, and the review by Mark Hemingway that I'm reading from, it's at uh, lawliberty.org. And uh, the central premise is that the problems in media stem largely from issues of class, even though they may, they may manifest differently sort of on the, on the surface. And we see performative posturing designed to assuage elite guilt. Okay? That's what you get when you are trying to protect the class of which you belong while pretending to actually still be a voice for the working class. The journalism field used to be made up of people in the working class, the ink-stained wretches, if you will. But as the, uh, as jour- for a number of reasons, and there are more, more than one reason here, but as journalism in the field has shrunk, you end up with newsrooms that uh, have fewer people, which means what? More, more applicants are trying to get in, which means you don't have to pay them as much. Which means what? Well, you better have some backing, some financial backing, if you are going to try to get a job in journalism. Because any journal, and this is why, by the way, in a lot of small news operations, a lot of your local news operations, you do have this sort of kindred spirit that you see manifest itself between reporters and, oh, to pick a random profession, let's just say teachers. They are like, yes, you should be paid more. They identify with teachers who are underpaid. I know this, okay? I, I, I speak from experience on this. I have, I have teacher friends. I have family members who are teachers, and I was a reporter. I worked in media for a while now, and so like, I can tell you there is this, there's this identification that occurs. Yeah, you're one of us kind of thing. They went to college. The journalism kid went to college. They're not getting paid a lot of money. The journalism kid ain't getting paid a lot of money. The difference is the teacher, you know, gets to lobby for more money. The journalism kid doesn't. So what does that mean? Well, the journalism kid better have some rich parents to help him pay some of the bills. And so now you end up with sort of this elite class that can bankroll the career push that it takes to get to the higher levels in Uh, elite journalist uh, outfits. There's some other reasons going on. 
Watergate. No, 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 not the equivalent of it that just occurred over the weekend with the uh, uh, the, the Durham report. That Everybody's ignoring that because, once again, it threatens the power structure. So, no, uh, the actual Watergate, Woodward and Bernstein, fairly or not, they were turned into uh, such romantic and charismatic crusaders for the public interest that journalists could take down a president, right? So now the profession became seen as powerful and attractive to the upper classes who had previously looked down at the ink-stained wretches. Soon, the most prestigious newsrooms didn't just serve the elite, they were staffed by their children. Yeah, if you had somebody in the family working at the media operation, or better yet, running it and staffing it, you could control the narrative. And if you are... In the upper class, this is very attractive. And by the way, this is not new. It's not a new concept. This existed previously, before journalism went down the path of Pulitzer and Hearst and uh, yellow journalism and all of that stuff. Like before that, it was it was very much seen as you know these sort of uh, house organs for the uh, for the upper class. On a practical level, the book notes that one reason why working class kids have been shut out of newsrooms is. Recent college graduates need to have wealthy families that can sustain them so they can afford New York and D.C.'s exorbitant cost of living while doing internships trying to get by on entry-level salaries. The result is that newsrooms get better credentialed employees more affordably, but it comes at a cost. Newsrooms may be diverse in terms of skin tone, but they're staffed by people who have never really been in a mobile home, never had to drink powdered milk as a kid. Though the New York Times may claim that talk radio is turning millions of Americans into conservatives, the truth is almost certainly the opposite. Conservative media is conservative because it caters to the working class and not the other way around. Did you catch that? Conservative media is conservative because it caters to the working class. What does that mean? The working class is conservative. They live their lives as conservative. Limbaugh used to talk about this all the time, that most people live their lives with conservative values. They just don't see themselves as politically Republican, politically conservative, or you know, right-winger or whatever. This desire to rebuff the working classes signaled that through circula- uh, signal not through uh, not through circulation, but through content. This is what she writes: the desire to rebuff the working class is signaled not through the circulation, but through content. So it doesn't matter the numbers, right? you got dwindling numbers. It's the content. No matter how big a story is, for example, the opioid crisis, right? The opioid crisis that has devastated working-class communities all across America. It doesn't really appeal to affluent liberals, though, so it doesn't get the coverage. It's only, you know, 15 years later that we start seeing, you know, Books and movies like Dope Sick, right? Uh, One other point here in the article. Mainstream liberalism. Mainstream liberalism has much more tension between its radical cultural stances and the wealthy power structures that undergird it than the post-Trump right do. Ungar Sargon notes that papering over this contradiction is impossible without media. Once a tool to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, today American journalism comforts the comfortable. 
It speaks power to truth, not truth to power, and it insists on an orthodoxy that protects the interests of the elites in the language of a culture war whose burden is given to the working class to bear. Because here's the thing. When you make it about racism and white privilege and white guilt, right? You do all that. What have we been talking about with critical race theory, right? These are things that people cannot control. So what does that mean? Well, it means that I, as a member of the upper class, I can't control it either. So I have no responsibility. And I can just project it onto you. We'll do some diversity and inclusion training and maybe give the mayor $250 million for an equity initiative and be done with it. Yay, us. Got a message here about um, what is the article you are reading during the 130 segment? The name of the piece is News for the Elite by Mark Hemingway. It is at lawliberty.org. And uh, it's a it's a book review of a new book that is out called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. The author's name is Batya Ungar Sargon. And if I recall correctly, she is of the left. And the premise of the argument that she lays out is that uh, wokeism obviously is destroying it, but that it, this is sort of just uh, the outward appearance of what is essentially a class problem inside journalism for a number of different reasons, as she has explained. And at the core of it now, we see a lot of these corporate outfits that are staffed by children of upper class members of our society who uh, they don't they don't connect. They don't understand. They they have very little in common with, quote, working class people. So when you see working class people, oh, you know, I don't know, get in trucks and block a bridge over freedom concerns and mandates and the like, they are treated differently. They're treated differently than, say, people who go and burn down a city and loot CVSs and Targets, right? Though the New York Times may claim that talk radio is turning millions of Americans into conservatives. The truth is almost certainly the opposite. Conservative media is conservative because it caters to the working class and not the other way around. That is from the book. She, uh, Hemingway, uh, in his piece, then says, uh, this in particular is an example of how the medium is the message. Most people who had jobs affording them the opportunity to listen to Rush Limbaugh for three hours in the middle of the day were either on the job in cars or working on shop floors. This is something that the left has never understood. They don't they they can't conjure up an image of you. They can't. They don't understand who is this person that Limbaugh's talking to? Who's this person from noon to three? And today it's me, right? Who can sit there? Well, I understand, like. You're on the shop floor, right? You're working on cars. You got radio going. Maybe you're in a restaurant. You got something in the background. Well, restaurant. Now you probably want music playing. Keep you going. In which case then, you know, it's very hurtful. But also people who drive around and do sales. They're in their car all day long making service calls, going to people's homes and such. It's a different way of listening. I've gone over this too. Like in, in radio world, there's active listening and passive listening. People who listen to a talk product are actively listening. And 
that means that when, um, and there are off ramps, there are these sort of audio off ramps uh, that just subconsciously your mind takes. And if you're listening to music, chances are uh, if someone starts talking, you're not going to want to, it's going to break you out of the music mind and you're going to want to change the station, right? Um, or if you got music playing, you generally have somebody else in the car with you. It's background, you know, you're listening in the background, or if you're at home, you may have it on in the background, but it's not, it, it's not necessarily dominant. That's sort that's the passive form of listening. It's not to say that everybody listens like that, but that's the passive form. Active listening is you may be running on a treadmill right now. And the only thing rattling around in your brain is the sound of my voice. It's a very intimate experience. You're driving down the road and you're listening to me. It's like I'm in the car with you. You're going about doing the things in your daily life that you need to do to provide for your family, to get bills paid, and you've got me next to you to keep you company. And I I am humbled by that. I am eternally grateful that I get to do this that I love doing, uh, and I get to be a part of your day. I do. I really appreciate it. Every year, whether it's Thanksgiving or, or Christmas, I always thank everybody for letting me continue to do this because it's a privilege. It really is. Um, and I've worked a lot of those jobs. So, like, I get it. You want your mind distracted. You also want to be up to date on the news. And you want, you know, classic comedy gold that I provide. So, uh, it's like I've always said, I'm a giver. All right, so back to Hemingway's piece. He says that uh, this desire to rebuff the working class uh, signals not through circulation, but through content. What have we talked about, too? It's about the story selection. What stories get in and what stories don't? Russia collusion story. Perfect example, right? He says, if there is a problem with this book, and this is not the author's fault, it is that it feels like a little, or it feels like uh, too little too late, he says. The credibility of the corporate press has already been obliterated in the last five years thanks to the enthusiastic endorsement of the baseless Trump-Russia scandal, the mostly peaceful protests, quote-unquote, and the present COVID hysteria, among numerous other failures. And the media is in nearly complete denial that these failures even happened in the first place. He says, I agree that America's political system needs a better media establishment, but that's a matter of what can be salvaged. Where Unger Sargon speaks of reforming the media, the counteroffer for much of America is to just raise CNN and the New York Times and salt the earth with. And that's it. That's where I am. I talked about this when it happened. Um, and I, I still feel the same way today, which is what radicalized me on this was the Kavanaugh hearings. I wasn't even a particular fan of Brett Kavanaugh. I thought like during the 2016 election, when I was arguing with people about Donald Trump, people told me, Pete, you need to vote for Trump because of the judge issue. And I said, I agree. That's the most compelling argument for, for Donald Trump. It absolutely is. I hate Hillary, but I was like, I don't want it to do. I don't want to, I, I, cause I don't, I'm not a fan. I wasn't a fan. They said, but look, the Federalist Society, they got all the list of the Trump na uh, nominees. These are who he'll pick from. And then along comes Kavanaugh. I'm like, ugh, I knew it, right? Because he wasn't on that original list. They added some. But then I saw what the left and the media, but I repeat myself, what they did to Kavanaugh. 
And it radicalized me because it was so bad and so blatant. And that's what all of this really is about. All right, news is next. WBTAM Charlotte. WBTFM Chester. WLNK HD2 Charlotte. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Good afternoon. I'm Mark Muller in the WBT News Center. The mass mandate in Mecklenburg County could end in just hours. Here's Queen City News' Derek Dellinger. It's happened before, but this time it looks like it may be more long-term. The idea of Mecklenburg County's indoor mass mandate going away has left many asking questions or a little nervous. Commissioner Mark Jurell. You know, we, we're certainly going to hope for the best, but uh, we also have to remain cautiously optimistic. The county's COVID positivity rate is right now at 15.7%. It's down significantly from their highs, but higher than the 5% commissioners have said in the past that they want to see. But there may be other things taken into consideration. So I think the decreases are real. Dr. Katie Passaretti is the chief epidemiologist for Atrium Health. She says hospitalizations, which have been a key indicator for COVID restrictions, are still high, but they are looking a lot better. And the county commissioners are meeting tonight at 6 o'clock, and Novant Health leaders adjusting their visitor restrictions as COVID levels decline. They say most patients hospitalized at their facilities in North Carolina will be allowed to have unrestricted number of visitors who are 12 years and older. And hospital officials say limits remain in place in certain areas and or as needed to allow uh, for safe social distancing in waiting areas and in patient rooms. News Talk 1110-993 WBT. Let's see how those roads are looking right now. Traffic check time. Here's Boomer. Thank you, Mark. And uptown we have a bump up 4th Street at McDowell. South of uptown, Providence Road at Caswell Road. On Queens Road West at Princeton Avenue. Highway 51, Pineville Matthews Road at Bennington Road, Lancaster Highway at Dolomite Drive, that's near Ballantyne Commons, and in Indian Land, Charlotte Highway 521 south of Marvin Road. This report sponsored by Bojangles. If the workday's over but your hunger's gearing up, go for Bojangles' eight-piece handcrafted chicken, biscuits, fixings, and tea, all for just $19.99. Download the Bojangles app for curbside pickup. Boomer Von Cannon, WBT Traffic. Thank you, Boomer. News brought to you by Mark Spain Real Estate. Go to MarkSpain.com to get a guaranteed offer on your home today.